can take you to all sorts of places, but some of my favorite destinations take you not just to a different place, but to a different time. It's a feeling you can get inside a dimly lit cathedral where dazzling mosaics leave you as awestruck as a medieval peasant. It's a feeling you can get shivering on the ramparts of a muddy fortress, imagining hordes of invaders battering at the gates below. But nowhere have I had that feeling as strongly as I have in Egypt. The Sphinx, the colossal pyramids, towering temples such as Abu Simbel, and treasure-laden tombs of pharaohs. No other country boasts such a remarkable collection of ancient relics. There is so much to explore in Egypt. And today, we're going to do just that in the company of an expert. Hello and welcome to I Know This Place. I'm Uti Yonka, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kara Cooney, Egyptologist and Department Chair at UCLA. Kara, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you're going to take us on a tour of some of the most interesting sites in ancient Egypt. But before we do that, let's find out a little bit about this kingdom. Now, obviously, it was really powerful. They had the resources to build these huge temples and to pile the tombs of the pharaohs high with all these golden treasures. But one thing we tend to forget is that it was really, really old, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the old saying is that we're closer to Cleopatra than Cleopatra was to the pyramids. So this, this place is, <laughs> it is quite ancient and its continuity, it's 3,000 years of the same language, though unch you know changes through time, but the same language, same culture, same religious system, same political system. This is very seductive to us. It's something that we yearn for, for ourselves. And so that, that continuity is something that draws us very, very profoundly. And of course, they've left us with these impressions of these mighty kings and warriors. But that continuity is actually quite, that they were quite, they had wars, but they were quite unchallenged in their base there. They were this kingdom on the Nile and they did their thing. I'm working on an article right now for a, an edited volume, some scholarly tome that few people will read. But in this article, I'm working on how geography formed Egypt. And the geography created a different kind of place. It's a protected place because there's deserts on two sides. There's the big granite boulders in the Nile to the south. There's the Mediterranean Sea to the north. This is not an easy place to invade. And it's also a place that has this Nile carving its way through a desert expanse, creating essentially the largest oasis on earth with easy farming. When Herodotus visited this place in the fifth century BC, he's like, oh my gods, you throw some seeds into the ground and you let your animals trample them, and then you just have these big juicy fat kernels of grain <laughs> a couple seasons, or you know, a couple months later, that's it. And you know, in Greece, you have to move the rocks and get the plow, and it's all this horrible work and labor. Egypt can feed a great many people with a great um, minimum of labor. And so it's a place where the status quo can be maintained, where warlording is kept to a minimum, where there's not much competition, where you can be lazy and poor with a lot of people for 3,000 years. Okay, so that's how they get around to building these incredible monuments. They have a, a great number of people that are all underemployed. They have a lot of resources to feed those people. And they're surrounded by mineral resources with which to build all of these wonders. Put all of that together, take away the warlording and competition, and you have the perfect recipe for pyramid building, temple building, the wonders of the ancient world. 
Okay, so let's talk about some yeah, of the stuff they yeah. did with all their lazy work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the pyramids. These are the single most famous thing in Egypt, and they're also one of the easiest to access because they're just outside Cairo on, on the plateau of Giza. You go there, you've seen pictures of them. Everyone knows what those pyramids look like. And you go there and you kind of go, oh my God, they're really big. <laughs> it's, they still take my breath away. And I remember the first time I saw them, and we're talking about the, the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau, uh -huh. because of course Egypt has hundreds of pyramids, but these are the three greatest, the ones built of stone through and through, really the apex of, of pyramid building. Uh-oh, I'm gonna take off my, my beautiful bracelet. <laughs> Leave that there. Stop that like, jangling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the first time I stood in front of the Great Pyramid at Giza, you know, I looked up that mountain of stone 50 stories high and was stunned that this was made by human hands. And there we have before us the Egyptians' billboard for kingship that lasted for thousands of years that continues to still work on our simple human minds because... Others, when they stand in front of that pyramid, they don't think, oh my God, how brilliant to create such a thing that proves your divinity. They think, aliens were here. <laughs> this, this can't have been built by human hands. This has to be something that was done by others. People can't have done this. As soon as people think that, then they feed into the propaganda that the kings created, and it, it's still working on us. It's extraordinary. So it's really, if the pharaohs knew about the conspiracy theories, I'd be going, yeah, we nailed that one. Yeah, they, they did it. They created it. They knew exactly what they were doing. They wanted to be superhuman, beyond human, gods on earth, and they created structures to prove it, and they still work. And of course, you can actually go inside at least one of these pyramids. You can go inside many of these pyramids, and some of them are, are quite boring and awful, and some are breathtaking and amazing. And it's interesting which kings put all of their beauties on the inside to literally float within the limestone, these granite structures floating within a limestone um, base or, or core, if you like. Um, Khufu built a grand gallery. He built um, full granite lined floating burial chambers within his pyramid. So to go into this pyramid structure and and I'm very tall you're very tall but you know a six foot tall woman having to go into these structures it's not easy you kind of end up squatting you can't really bend over and walk you have to kind of chicken walk up this there's thing there's nothing graceful about nothing. it <laughs> I always end up pulling a thigh muscle or something and you enter into this grand gallery and you can't believe that this exists inside of a pyramid with tons of stone weighing down upon it so that in and of itself is, is a miracle when you can see it. But then you realize that maybe a couple of dozen people would have seen this beyond the laborers. And that in and of itself is, um, it, it, it gives you a pause. It makes you realize that all of these structures are about display. But display to whom? Display to which audience? The pyramid is for everyone to see. There's no missing this pyramid. <laughs> you can see it from the Nile, you can see it from the desert, you can see it from Cairo, you can see it from very far away. Everyone is meant to see that, but not everyone is meant to see those chambers on the inside. And the next king knew this, Khafre, the next king who built a, a tomb on the Giza Plateau, and he dispensed with all of that. He's like, look, I barely can scrape together the energy, the materials, the labor to put together the pyramid of 50 stories uh, of stone. And he does that, but he's like, 
I'm just going to put my burial chamber in the bedrock underneath. I don't have time for this crap. <laughs> and so just leaves I've it I've got be. other things to be getting on with. And if that's the pyramid that's open, people are very disappointed. They crawl and make their way into this burial chamber and they get there and they're like, that's it. And it's just a rectangle, a square of stone and that's it. It's lined with granite, big deal. And um, they make their way out and it's nothing like Khufu's interior. Nothing so if Khufu is open, that's the one you go for. Khufu is the one you go for. If... If you make your way down south to Dashur, there's a pyramid built by Snefru there that has corporal vaulting that's quite lovely, the red pyramid. The bent pyramid is also Snefru. Snefru built three pyramids, we think. Um, don't get me started on why. But, um, <laughs> but it's, the interiors of his are all quite special. So you, you want to look on what's on the inside before you make your way into one of these things, particularly if crawling around in dirty, dank, <laughs> airless spaces is not your style. You want to get some bang for your buck. So the pyramids of Giza, they're actually all built in a really short period of time. Yes, because it had to happen within each king's reign. So a generation is generally what I would say, a 20-year time span. And there are papyri that show that the, the Great Pyramid was built in about, maybe not the Great Pyramid, I think it's Snefru's Pyramid, I'd have to check. See, this is what Egyptologists always say. They're like, oh, it's not my period. And it's not. This <laughs> is thousands of thousands years of before years what I do. <laughs> so I would have to, but I, I teach pyramids all the time, right? So I would have to check and see which king says, um, has documentation for how long it takes. But about 20, 20 something years to build one of these things from from top, uh, from bottom to top. And, um, and then from top to bottom as you case it. So... It's, it's something that is meant to encase the body of the king, transform the body of the king, but it does have a larger purpose. Each pyramid that's put up adds to this landscape of royal divinity, making that institution of kingship bigger and better than it was before. Cool. They, they had a flair for showmanship, really. You they, give them the that. Egyptians under, this is what I'm working on. My next, well, my next book with National Geographic is about this. And it's called The Good Kings. And it's about authoritarianism and how it's sold. And how it's sold as something moral and good and right. And no one excelled at that more than the ancient Egyptians. In proving a gross social inequality as good. Um, it's something that we would never submit to ourselves or we think we would never submit to in the United States or in other Western countries. But... It's something to which we are nonetheless very attracted. And these days as authoritarianism spreads the globe, it's, um, it's something I think we need to think about more carefully. And be very wary mm -hmm. if any of our leaders start building pyramids. Well, they, they kind of do. You know, when I did a TV show on the pyramid for the Discovery Channel, it was called Shape of the Gods. And I looked at pyramids all over the world built independently of one another. And I started in Egypt, of course, but then I also went to Mexico and uh, we discussed pyramids in Mesopotamia. And I ended with the Burj Khalifa in, in Dubai. Essentially, the tallest building in the world is pyramidal in shape. And it is performing the same function for its leaders that the pyramids did for the ancient kings. Fascinating. So let's go to what I think is one of the most impressive sites in ancient Egypt, which is down the river, which is the modern town of Luxor, which was where you had the ancient capital of Thebes, and you got the temple of Karnak. And Karnak is a really important site for a really long period of time, right? 
Karnak is a tough space for the tourists to enter and understand. It is something that was built over a couple thousand years. It is one of the most sprawling religious complexes in the world. It covers something like two square kilometers. I think. It's, it's huge. And, you know, to go in there, I go in there with graduate students. I go in there, I've, I've gone in there as a graduate student. I've always gone in there trying to commit as much as possible to my memory, what was built where, what's built by which king, which imagery is where, and it becomes overwhelming for me. The tourist goes in and just sees a jumble of stones that goes on and on and <laughs> can't quite figure it out and can't read the hieroglyphs. And so, you know, it's it's amazing and astounding, but that's that's it. They, they leave it there and generally move on. Um, Karnak is interesting too because while you mentioned that Thebes was a capital, it is a capital. It is one of many. And um, the most clearly over thousands of years. Yes, but move. also the Nile creates a different kind of place. The Nile allows two weeks upriver, a week downriver. This is a place that is easily united, and that artery connects it all. So these kings can be in Memphis one day, and then in in Thebes seven days later, and that's well maybe ten, eleven, twelve, but. You know, it's it's not too long a journey, and it's not an arduous journey. You're on a beautiful Nile barge. You're not rolling <laughs> around in the mud on some, you know, um, horse-driven carriage or something like that. It's um, it's easy to move from place to place. So Thebes is, I would call it a religious capital. It's not okay. a population center. It's not an industrial capital. It's not where all the cosmopolitan who's who was happening. But it's the place that is the most arid and unpopulated today, and thus it has the best preservation. So if you want to see what Egypt's structures were like, you need to go down south. Because all of the structures up north, most of them have been removed, raised to the ground. It's limestone taken for lime kilns to make concrete and other things. Um, other temples destroyed to, to build the modern city of Cairo or the medieval city of Cairo. And so if you go down south to to Thebes, modern day Luxor, you can then walk through these temples, some of them with, with roofs still on them and get an idea for the, the atmosphere of the place and what these temples would have felt like all throughout Egypt. And you have these amazing um, forests of columns in, and everything's covered in hieroglyphics. And I remember the first time I went, well, blew my mind, was in some corners, particularly if there was a standing roof attached to walls, there's color. We think of ancient Egypt as stone carving, but everything was painted and it's just that the sun has bleached the color away, right? The color is very well preserved in some temples. So if you go to Medinet Habu, for instance, the mortuary temple of Ramses III, the amount of color that's preserved is astounding and it's all 3,000 years old. And it's all the colors, the same palette the Egyptians had used for thousands of years, red and yellow ochres, carbon black, Huntite white, gypsum plaster, um, Egyptian blue, Egyptian green. And you, you put these things together and you create this very bright palette that does not, if, if it's in a dry, arid place and if there's no rainfall coming from the sky, that color can be preserved for, for thousands of years. To me, when I think of Egypt, see, I think of Greece and Rome as being these white, marble pieces without color and then we've had to add the color that was once there. Egypt preserves it so much better and the other thing that Egypt has is you go into one of these covered spaces that is meant to be hidden and covered like a tomb and then the color is wild, wildly preserved. It's, it's totally amazing and the other thing that kind of does my head in, I remember going 
to Luxor for the first time and there's the Temple of Karnak, there's the Temple of Luxor and both of them have these, they're, they're what, a couple of kilometres apart, both of them have these sort of avenue of sphinxes leading in and the one at Karnak is, is particularly impressive. And I went back to Egypt recently and it was like, oh yeah, no, we've, we've dug and it turns out they're connected and we're going to dig them up and there's going to be, I think, two kilometres, a two kilometre long avenue of sphinxes. They're still finding this stuff. This they're is still crazy. finding these things. And a friend of mine, um, Salah Al-Maseh, he's just found a Greek period bathhouse in front of Karnak. So there's there's more to be found wow. and and all kinds of things keep appearing. The the Sphinx Avenue doesn't come with a co- without a cost though, and I should remark that to uncover those two kilometers of Sphinxes, that Sphinx Alley, yeah. they had to move a number of homes and relocate people by force in some cases, and so then you know the archaeologist asks him or herself, what is more important: stones, preservation, people's homes. What do you do when people's homes are leaving sewage on, on antiquities? What, what, I mean, where's, where do you draw the line? What are your values? What's important to you? And it becomes um, tricky stuff to decide what's of importance. The Egyptians themselves have decided that uh, tourism and preservation should be uppermost in, in people's minds. And so they have, they have moved people, keep that, those materials safe from that, that sewage and human waste and also to keep um, access to the, mm-hmm. those antiquities. So that's what's happening on the east bank of the Nile mm-hmm. in Luxor. And then, of course, but there's a whole different scenario happening on the west bank. So tell us what happened on the west bank. The west bank is the land of the dead, the land of the setting sun, and it's a much quieter place. And I imagine that in the ancient world it was quiet too. It's funny that when you want to feel what an ancient place was like, you often need to feel what the modern place is like. So if you go to Egypt today and you want to know where the population center was, well, it's still in Cairo. In the ancient times, it was around Cairo, um, moving around here or there. Thebes was always more provincial, more of a backwater, quieter. It was the Vatican City compared with Rome. Sort of, except that, Vat- yeah, Vatican City is on the outsides, it's on the outskirts. Now it's, you know, as loud as could be <laughs> because Rome keeps growing. Um, Egypt is very much the same. Luxor is now a city of over a million people, which is astounding in and of itself. When I started working there, it was nothing like that. And the West Bank, you take the, the boat over. When I started, the bridges were few and far between and you had to take the Nile Ferry. Now you can get a bridge pretty easily. But the West Bank is still quiet, and the not that there aren't farms on both sides, of course there are, but there's no big city. And there you also have these monuments built by kings, their mortuary temples, um, their tombs, the, all of the, the things that are associated with a forever existence, meant to last forever, a mansion of millions of years, as the Egyptians themselves called them. And so these spaces are, are romantic spaces of the dead. And if you're interested in death or how people dispose of their dead, this is the place for you to go. If you're interested, like me, in social lives and competition and how people show how important they are, this is also the place to go because people put their best foot forward into, as they're stepping into the afterlife. And you want to see if this is the way they're buried and this is what their tomb looks like, this is representative of their their social life as well. So this becomes, for, for any pharaoh, 
this is an important thing, right? You get to the throne and you start planning for what's going to happen when you're dead. For any person, for any Egyptian elite person who had disposable income, this was something they were exhorted to do. And the texts tell us that they were meant to do this. That as soon as you become a person with income of your own, you're meant to start planning your tomb. For a king, the stakes are that much higher. So you want to make sure that you have your, your tomb ready to go, but also a place of worship, a cult space where you can connect with the spirit of the king and give that king offerings, make prayers to that king, receive things back from that king. So this is the mortuary temple. Yes. And this is not necessarily anywhere near your tomb. Well, this is a weird thing that happens when they start burying their kings in Thebes. Before they buried their kings in Thebes, where did they bury them? We've already talked about them in these pyramids, right? Mm -hmm. A pyramid is a container for the body of the king and out in front of the pyramid on the north side and and on the east side are chapels or or larger temples sometimes quite sprawling and large that allow the living to connect with the dead king on the inside the problem with a pyramid i mean it's a great way of proving the divinity of a human being it works wonderfully for that but it is not good for hiding your your great stuff that you've stuck in there. You're basically saying to the grave robbers, here I am, come Exactly, and get me. <laughs> it is a beacon. It is it is uh, very problematic and it draws people towards your tomb like like um, bees to a bright flower. So the, the Egyptian kings of the, starting with the 11th dynasty, but then they got seduced by the pyramids again, um, really with the 18th dynasty, they decide we need to hide our tombs. And so we have a text about Tutmos the first of the 18th dynasty being buried in the Valley of the Kings with no one seeing, no one hearing. That's the quote that we have from another tomb. And so it is meant to be a secret sepulcher. It is meant to be a secret burial location. But now he has a problem. He's secret. His body is hidden. How are people going to connect with his, with his soul? How are they going to make offerings to him? So he places a separate temple that is physically removed from the tomb but has an axis connecting to it. There's, there's all kinds of ways to connect in space in the Egyptian mindset. And then people can go to his temple and make offerings to him without disturbing or giving ah, away the location of the tomb. It's very clever. Cool. That is very clever. And so there's one mortuary temple in particular that I think blows away most visitors, and that's the one of Hatshepsut. And it's set against this cliff, and it's sort of triple tiers of terracing and it's got these giant statues of the pharaoh everywhere. Tell us a bit about Hatshepsut, one of the most fascinating people in Egyptian history. Well, she was the 18th dynasty. Sorry, hang on. She? She, Hatshepsut, was the 18th dynasty's first female king. There weren't a lot of female kings in Egypt. There were were five of them. There were five of them. And I have written a book for National Geographic (laughs) called When Women Ruled the World that discusses each of these women plus an additional sixth for... Um, a little fun to give, to give us an idea that even in the oldest of dynasties, this was this use of the female to protect the authoritarian regime was a very um, useful and workable model. Let me put it this way. If you have an authoritarian kingship that you want to protect and you believe in the divinity of your king and the king that's chosen, and say you choose a 10-year-old kid to be your next king, will you allow the uncle of that kid to be his regent to make the decisions. You're not gonna allow the 10 year old to do it. God help us all, I have a nine year old myself. We can't, <laughs> we can't let that boy make any decisions for all of Egypt. But 
you need to to pick a regent who's not going to be a threat to that boy. Mm -hmm. The best regent is that kid's own mother. Ah. Not the kid's uncle, not the dead king's brother, not somebody who's going to want to take the power for himself. We all know who commits most of the violent acts in this world. Is it the men or is it the women? And I'm not trying to essentialize gender. I know there are gradients of this. But even along those gradients, it is generally those on the masculine side of things that commit more of these violent crimes than on the feminine side. So is this how Hatshepsut comes to the It is exactly how. The Egyptians knew this, and they knew that women ruled differently. And so they chose them to to be placeholders and Mm stand-ins when their masculine authoritarian kingship was threatened. And every now and then, one of these regents, these female regents, is able to take power for herself as king. The Egyptians called them king. That's why I call them king. Using the word queen for the ancient Egyptians, it it connoted no power. So they don't use it. I don't use it. Mm -hmm. I call them female king. Hatshepsut was a female king who before that had been regent on behalf of her nephew, not her own son. Maybe that's why she became king. The kid wasn't her son. So she wasn't like, oh, baby, you're doing so well. Keep going. I'll just go back here in the shadow. She's like, that's my nephew. I don't really, you know, I can do this better than him. But for whatever reason, and we don't know those details, in year seven of the kid's reign, when he was probably about nine, 10, 11 years old, she becomes king alongside him and starts making some incredibly ballsy decisions. No, no puns intended. Um, what and sort of thing? She picks that spot that you were discussing for her mortuary temple, her temple of millions of years. She picks the most visible and the most visited spot in Western Thebes for her mortuary temple. It is the spot where when the bark of Amun is brought over every year in something called the beautiful feast of the valley, that bark, it's a something that the priests are holding aloft on their shoulders and an icon of the god Mm -hmm. Amun is inside in a a shrine and they carry this they put on a boat they cross the river they do this whole festival thing imagine a pilgrimage or imagine a a saint's day in Spain where they bring the statue out and it's a big deal imagine a a festival in India where the statue of the god comes out of the temple and they dress it up and it's everyone's dancing around it and holding it aloft it's that kind of a thing and they bring the statue of the god across every year to visit the land of the dead and the land the ancestors of the dead use their reanimating powers to allow Amun to be reborn and Amun uses his reanimating powers to help the ancestors to be reborn and it's like this amazing rebirth um uh, festival and even the dead partake in this right so every ancestor gets visited by all of their family members, and it's like a, a Dio de los Muertos mm-hmm. sort of situation. Well, Hatshepsut picks ground zero of this <laughs> most amazing festival and says to everyone, no, look at me <laughs> and look at my stuff. And when you hit Egypt and you go to the Nile, the first thing that your eye hits as you're looking around is that great bay of cliffs, that natural half moon shape. Um, looks almost lunar, this, this deep red color when the, when the sun sets. And her temple is nestled right into it. So um, quite a bold move. And probably the reason that her temple still stands, even though her kingship was removed from her eye, from our eyes after her reign. So tell us what you mean by that. Because after she dies, after, her, ne- her nephew comes to the throne. 
Her nephew had been on the throne the whole time. She okay, didn't her nephew have, comes it's confusing. to power. I know. Okay. He, from what we can see, he was in power the whole time. But again, she's the senior king, right? She's the one that's really calling the shots, and he has to do what she says. When when he comes into power as sole king, he he finishes her structures at the beginning. Oh, he does. He does. He puts his name alongside hers. He connects himself to her. Then, about twenty years on, when he picks his heir to the throne mm -hmm. and he picks an heir to the throne who is not related to her or her family or okay. her daughter probably and he goes around that family then he goes on this chisel happy spree of removing <laughs> all of her names and images and gets the sledgehammers out and has has men smash up her statuary into tiny little bits so when you mentioned that temple with all of these statues of her all over those have been glued together by different archaeological missions, the Polish right now doing a, an amazing um, bang up job and putting this stuff back together, and those have been put back into the, their proper places. So, and by removing her name from things, and I think we, we can see this in Karnak too, yeah, because yep. every pharaoh erects something in Karnak and mm. her name gets chiseled out, mm -hmm. and he's just trying to obliterate her. Her existence, her afterlife? He, he no, it doesn't seem that he's going after her on that kind of a personal level because her images as queen, as regent, are unmarred. They're fine. Okay. The, it's only the images of her as king that he goes after and destroys. So it's her kingship that is aberrant. It is her kingship that is problematic. And it doesn't seem to have been problematic for him. She made his kingship happen. If she hadn't been there, his kingship would never have existed. Someone else would have been would chosen. Have he wouldn't else. have been protected. There would have been a man in the role, something like that. So she protected him. He, he lets her stay for him, but it's when his son comes along that he finds her reign problematic in improving the correct and proper kingship of his son. He also picks Amenhotep II as a very young king. He picks a young kid. And he has him crowned alongside himself with him. He's the senior king this time. So there's okay. two kings again on the throne. He makes sure that no one's going to come in and put a different person on the throne that he doesn't want. So he, he makes sure that he sets it up beforehand by just placing Because he works out him. that the king afterward can do all kinds of yes, things. Yes, and he knows it probably. <laughs> so um, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Good so, point. so we've got the Mortuary Temple there. We've got, this is also nearby is the Valley of the Kings where you can go in and, and see all these tombs where various pharaohs were buried. But there's some other interesting sites on the West Bank too. Tell us about one of your favorites. My favorite place is called Deir el Medina and it's a place that few visit and that few even know about and that only the tour buses or groups go to if they have, a, if they have more time and they have a tour leader who knows what they're doing. It's the village of the men who built and decorated the tombs in the Valley of the Kings and the Valley of the Queens. Okay, so it's, it's where the laborers live. So the artisans who, who cut and decorated the tomb of Nefertari mm -hmm. in the Valley of the Queens, the tomb of Seti I in the Valley of the Kings, this is where they lived. And they needed to be in the desert because it was close to their workplace. They needed to be in the desert because they also were surrounded by police and their comings and goings were monitored. People needed to know who knew where the Tomb of the King was and who was going there. These things needed to be watched. So you couldn't have a whole bunch of men coming from you know, inundation lands with farms going off to the tombs to work every day. Um, it would have taken too long to walk all that way. 
and too many people would have known where these people were buried. So they needed to keep it secret, keep it safe, as, as Gandalf tells Frodo with the ring. <laughs> and so these guys live out in the middle of the desert, and because they're living there, they, their families live there, their, their wives, their children, the, a whole support staff. Water has to be brought in by donkey load. These men were literate, and they wrote down every little detail about their lives on limestone flakes or broken pieces of pottery. And that's why this place is so incredibly beloved to me, because there are tens of thousands of dot. Oh, no, see, my life is too busy, and I'm going to turn off my phone. Apologies. <laughs> um, there, there. That's my own ostraca and documents coming in. It's the same sort of thing. It's the text message of its of its day. The, these Daryl Medina notes, and these notes, like a text message, you know, you see short writing, you see um, people shortening words, you don't see the full context. So you'll pick up a, a flake of limestone, or at least this was the reality 100 years ago, you pick up a flake of limestone and there's writing all over it in a cursive, hieratic script. Wow. And it'll say things like, what I gave to Paneb for his donkey. Three shirts making five debon, two pairs of sandals making 10 debon, and and 10 loaves of bread of sun bread or something <laughs> and and then it gives total blah 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 you know that's a nice clear one a lot of the time it's oh and ramosa brought you know a, a goat and this person brought that and then paneb put in something else and then the the transaction gets incredibly complicated <laughs> and I'm, I'm working on these things right now also um uh, writing a book about this but um so you get you, there's a divorce there's divorce documents where there's you can divorce see there documents. are divorce documents. There's, you know, where she gets, she's going to the council of elders and saying, I'm bringing these things out of my marriage. This is what I brought in. This is what I'm taking out, bitches. And she gets to take <laughs> out what, what, you know, what she brought in. And she has it documented before and she shows and has it documented after. And she swears, yes, this is the situation. I was like, yep, go ahead. You're free to go. And there are, there's documentations about rape where people make accusations against somebody there's um, situations where th there's documentation about a strike, repeated strikes, when they're not being paid by the state. And they start marching on these mortuary temples that we were just talking about saying, where is our grain payment? What the hell is going on? We want our food <laughs> and we're not working until you give it to us. There's documentation about when things get really bad at the end of the New Kingdom, about tomb robbery and uh, people going into other people's tombs, uh, people opening tombs they shouldn't be opening. Um, there's all kinds of wonderful things, social things, the, the drama of the soap opera in this place. And if you visit it today, you know, there, there's nobody there. The best way to go to Daryl Medina is to rent a bike and to go up the hill it's a bit of a long. It's I not was that about far. to go. Hang on. I know I've been there, and I don't think I'd want to bike it because it's, there is a hill there. There is a hill, but it's not too bad. If you get a decent bike, you'll be all right. <laughs> and ri ride your bike up there, so it's quiet the whole way, so you can get an understanding of what it would have been like for the workmen to be there. Because you know, you take a bus, and you have all the petrol fuels and everything. You get out, and it's just it does. It, the romance is already gone by the time <laughs> you get out. But if you take the bike, then you're already there on on your own. The, the power of your own two feet, sort of. And you can sit there and look around and you can't wander around the village. They don't let you do that. And I understand why, because there's still stuff to be found in these these huts where people lived are 
very, very fragile and essentially just outlines of stone and you don't want a bunch of stupid tourists going, going in there or a bunch of um, zealous uh, researchers either. <laughs> and so, you know, you can sit up on the hill and, and look down on that village and think about all of the people that live there and all of the arguments they had and all of the, um, the people that fell in love with the wrong people or, or whatever. And their tombs are right there behind you on the western side and you can go and visit those burial chambers some of the rarest instances of decorated burial chambers from all of Egypt, and they are beautifully done. Of course they are, because these are the artisans of of the south of Egypt, and they're going to make their burial chambers gorgeous, and they are. And they're and, tiny, but they're gorgeous. And we went to see some on my last trip, and there were these amazing pictures of, was it, I think it was a leopard or a lion and these really vivid and sort of daily scenes. And I think there was a family picnicking under a palm tree or something. And yeah. it's, it's so different. And it's only then that it hits you that what we think of as ancient Egypt is all those, those ego-driven kings demonstrating their might. And here you've got the real people. You've got the real people, and you have, but you have people that are nonetheless influenced by their work. It's kind of like you're... Um, you have access to Beyonce and you're part of her entourage, but you're not Beyonce, but, and you're not even on the inner circle. You're, you're Beyonce's cleaner. And, <laughs> and so, you know, and you're not even the high head housekeeper, right? Because I imagine her <laughs> housekeeper is all that. So, you know, you, you are, you're there and then you can go back to your people and say, Beyonce wears this, Beyonce does that, Beyonce <laughs> is like this. And you emulate her and you take little bits and pieces as you can. So you see the, human emulation you see what that people are still always looking up socially and those tombs those weird and unusual things in the tombs it's these men showing i know this special thing i know that special thing but then they also need to contextualize it and put it in their own world so they name their cousins and their brothers and and you have these lineups of people and that you would never see in the valley of the kings right you don't need to make that kind of social statement yeah. So you have all these things put together, and it's um, it's a very very special place. And the first time I went there as a graduate student, I was working on coffins, and I got my permission. It's a French concession. This is how colonial Egypt is. The French work there and continue to work there. So when I got my permissions, the French were like, "Did you ask the Egyptians?" And I said, "Yes." The Egyptians said, "Did you ask the French?" And I said, "Yes." And I had to go back and forth and back and forth, and that was a bureaucratic nightmare. But I got in. And they, they let me, they're like, okay, here's the storage for all the coffins. And it was a tomb. And it was a tomb that was filled with stuff that had been found by this French archaeologist named Bernard Bruyere, who in his French Western mind was like, I must organize. And he took every tomb and he put all the coffins from the tombs in that room and all the bodies from the tombs in that room and all the pottery from the tomb in the other room. Uh, yes, he decontextualized everything and made <laughs> a horrific mess that cannot be put back together despite his amazing publications and notes. He ruined it all. And so... I, you know, I'm looking at these coffins and it's just a pile of coffins. I don't know where any of them come from that I can't, I'm like, this is a mess. And I kind of worked through what I could, but then I'm like, I wonder what else is in here. And, um, you can smell the dead in a tomb. I, I knew that there were dead things in there mm -hmm. and the inspector wouldn't even come down with me. So I was like, <laughs> he smelled the dead. He came down. He's like, okay, you're good. You enjoy. I'm like, okay. And I, I was there for two weeks just by myself looking at stuff and taking pictures. But every now and then I'd go and visit the big pile of dead bodies in the next room <laughs> because you, I'd peek my head around and there was a mound of human mummy, I don't know, just a pile of humanity 
there in front of my eyes. The village of Daryl Medina was greeting me in their way there. <laughs> and these are the they're texts. They're all the smelly of, way. <laughs> yes, these are the texts of the people that, uh, you know, th there they were right there. I'm sure that some of them were in that pile. And I thought, oh my God, look at these people. And it was a good 20 years later when I was at UCLA with grad students of my own. And one of them, Ann Austin, um, who's now at the University of Missouri at St. Louis as an assistant professor. She was doing a bioarchaeology dissertation. I'm like, Anne, you need to talk to the French and see if you can get access to these Daryl Medina bodies because somebody needs to be working on them. They're all archaeologists. They don't have any bioarch. And she's like, oh, okay. And we write emails and we reach out. They're like, yes, come visit. I'm like, what? And so she, is, um, she has systematically gone through those bodies and carefully made sure that they're all um, as intact as they need to be chemically, that none of them are spontaneously combusting through strange mummification. Um, this happens chemically. Um, she's, she's made sure that she can put together what bodies, you know, what pieces belong to which um, individual. And, um, and she's even found uh, specimens, mummies that have tattoos on them, that we, that women that were covered with tattoos and we did not know that they were there. Briere didn't notice it. He just put them in the pile. <laughs> And uh, in 1920 or 30 or whenever, shovel it into the mummy. He's like, ah, I don't need that body. And Anne Austin has gone through these bodies very carefully. And so now your listeners can Google Anne Austin, and because of course the press picked this up, and there are beautiful images of the tattooed ladies that she's found in in Daryl Medina. It's wonderful. Oh, okay. It sounds like there has to be a whole other episode on the tattooed ladies of ancient Egypt. <laughs> there should be because this work is amazing, and it it as you said, there's the Egypt of the kings that is written down. But then there's the Egypt that is that was not written down, yeah. and we don't even know who these tattooed ladies were. Are they the wise women that are mentioned in these texts who perform magical spells and help heal people? Are they midwives? Are they? We we have no idea what what they were because there's the the state narrative, and yeah. then there's the narrative that nobody else would write down because they're too busy living it. Oh, Cara, you have just made this place come alive. Thank you so much for joining us today. So if you'd like to know more about ancient Egypt, Kara's latest book, When Women Real Ruled the World, looks at the lives of female pharaohs. Or for more podcasts or to catch up on my travels, visit Uti I can't even say my own website. Listen to that. Visit UltiYunker.com. That's U-T-E-J-U-N-K-E-R. Thanks for listening and join us again next time on I Know This Place. <laughs>